Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I don't know what you may have heard, but barbecue did not originate in Brooklyn. Barbecue is as Southern as it gets. It's more American than apple pie. Spanish settlers encountered indigenous people cooking meat slowly over indirect flame as early as Columbus's maiden voyage. And as the conquistadors moved toward the mainland, they carried the barbacoa tradition with them northward, with style making it as far north as Virginia, and regional styles developed based on the forced and brutal interactions of colonists, indigenous people, and enslaved Africans. So many of the food traditions of the South were born out of this unwilling mingling, including whole hog barbecue. Some argue American barbecue must have actually been born in the Carolinas because there are so many different distinct flavor styles in those states. And I don't know if it was born there, but it was certainly perfected in South Carolina. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are talking pork with James Ford award-winning chef Rodney Scott. Chef Scott grew up in a little town called Hemingway, South Carolina, where he was trained in the dying art of whole hog barbecue by his father. Today, he's taken that talent worldwide as the owner and operator of a growing chain of barbecue restaurants and a celebrated chef. We discuss what exactly makes good barbecue, how his restaurants have navigated the pandemic during the shutdown, his best spots for barbecue in the South, and his new cookbook, Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue, Every Day is a Good Day. So let's chow down on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Chef Rodney Scott, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This season, we've been thinking a lot about storytelling in the South. And I think one of the great storytelling traditions in the South is probably food uh, and barbecue in particular. You grew up there in Hemingway, South Carolina. And there's a lot of, I guess, food writers and theorists that think barbecue itself originated in South Carolina. Tell me about growing up in Hemingway and learning whole hog barbecue from your father and and your great uncle and, and your family. Man, growing up in Hemingway was something unique. You know, you're in a rural area. Everything is at least 10 to 15 uh, miles away or minutes away. A lot of farmers, a lot of uh, sharecropping, few factories in the area. Growing up, you worked on the farm. You learned how to crop tobacco, plant corn and gardens. And we grew soybeans, those kind of things. And we also cut wood to cook hogs. So cooking hogs was a normal thing that would go on around that area back in the 70s, 80s, and currently as well. You did not like tobacco farming, I understand. That was not your favorite part of your childhood. (laughs) I did not like tobacco farming. Oh, my goodness. Everything from setting the plants in the field when you plant them to pulling the extra stems out, which we call suckles. Everything from spraying the tobacco, making sure the worms don't eat it all, to breaking it off the stalks, to putting it in the barn, cooking it, unloading the barn, pulling it off the sticks, putting it in these big old sheets, is what they call them, like burlap sacks, and taking them to the market. Every step of it, I did not like. Did you always like cooking hogs, or was that something that you kind of realized later, oh, I could make a living out of this? I kind of realized later. I, I didn't always like cooking hogs. It was always easier to not even be in the fields in the sunshine, but you can be inside the pits, even though you're around the fire. It was a lot cooler cooking the hogs than it was out in the fields farming tobacco. In the first half of the 20th century, a lot of people from South Carolina moved 
lot of black people in particular from South Carolina moved up to Philadelphia. People from Alabama moved up to Detroit and Chicago and, and you know, the, the whole great migration. And I understand your parents weren't part of that early great migration, but moved up to Philadelphia later. And that's where they met. And then they moved home to South Carolina when you were born or, or shortly before you were born? Shortly after I was born, my mom told me they moved back from Philadelphia back to South Carolina. Did you have any sort of kinship or connection to to Philly or, or anywhere up north? Other than the Eagles, the Phillies and the Sixers. <laughs> yeah, there were a few family members there. Some of my mom's cousins were there. Aunts and uncles lived in the Philadelphia area. And she went up there and she was living with one of her sisters. And she began to work up there and, and live in Philadelphia for a short while. Then I was born and she decided to bring us back south. And your dad, uh, he, he owned several businesses there in South Carolina. And I understand you weren't entirely excited about this, but at some point, as you were graduating from high school, classmate of yours said that you'd never amount to anything more than working for one of your dad's barbecue businesses. Is that more or less right? <laughs> that is absolutely correct. So my dad not only farmed, but we had a general store. He he cut wood for the barbecue and he sold wood a little bit every now and again throughout the winter. So we, we were always doing a little bit of things here and there. And he ran a little bit of mechanic you know, work along the way. So in graduating, I'm excited, you know, I'm all happy. I'm thinking I'm going to make the best of my life from this day forward. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. And this girl says to me, you're not going to be anything. You're just going to be down the street cooking barbecue. And man, that that thing clicked. It stayed with me and, and it still does. I just was determined to, to get out of there to, to do the best that I can do. And barbecue was the one thing that we knew, that I knew, that I said, what can I do with barbecue? How can I make the best of this thing? And it was constant trying to break it down and figure it out, how to get successful with it, how to make it a more popular, how to sell so much that you can barely keep up. So it was the constant dreaming and imagining how to break this thing down. And I said, I can make the best of this situation if I go ahead and take advantage of what I have. Whole hog barbecue is, is kind of a disappearing tradition, I guess. It's not something that every barbecue restaurant that you go to, you know, it's a very time-intensive, labor-intensive process and it gives you a lot of time on your hands to kind of think about things. It takes, what, 10 hours, 12 hours to, to slow cook a, a whole hog? A whole hog, it takes anywhere from 10 to 12. Our style usually takes us about 12 hours. The mind is, is a weird place when it's just idling along for 12 hours, you know? <laughs> you think a lot of things. Tell me uh, how you pass the time. I mean, do you listen to music? Do you tell stories with friends? What do you do in order to, to pass that 12-hour period? All of that, man. If you got some great company with you, you tell stories with your friends. You, you talk about your day or your week before. You talk about what you may want to do the next day when you get done. And then there was music. Music was always that storyteller. For me, I noticed that music was anywhere from three to five minutes of song in a story. So in my mind, I would listen to each story that each song had to say, what type of rhythm it had, what instruments that I could pick out in the background, like the electric guitar, the bass, the drummer, the cymbal. These were all things that I would just kind of try to pay attention to. And before you know it, you pass these 12 hours while you're working, listening to music. You know, you first kind of started experimenting with with your parents' business model and kind of introducing storytelling to their overall business. You changed the, the color on the walls in order to stand out a little bit more. And it was, a, it was a color that had a specific relationship with you and your mom, I understand. Yes. So that, that color, my mom had gotten a, a Cadillac, the 79 Sedan DeVille Cadillac. And it was like a sky blue and white vinyl top, white interior. And before she got that car, I noticed one when I was younger. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty color. 
And I, I fell in love with the color so much. I said, what if the car and the building was the same color? And my mom gave me the opportunity to, to pick out the color. And I said, I want light blue on the building. Because also home economics taught us that red, yellow were the common colors that attract your attention to a lot of fast food joints. And if you pay attention, the average fast food joint is in red, yellow, or white, or maybe orange. So I felt like that Carolina blue, that light blue was the color that was next in line that would get capture people's attention, but also it was unique because it wasn't your standard red, yellow, orange type of paint. I mean, that's a bold move in South Carolina painting your building Carolina blue. Did you ever catch any hell from local Gamecocks fans or, or Clemson fans or anything like that? Well, Clemson fans, I never paid them any attention anyway. But uh, <laughs> Carolina fans, no, didn't hear anything much. You know, when we first chose the colors, I didn't think about that. I said, well, it's Carolina blue. Let's, let's not focus on the college. It's South Carolina and it has blue. I remember about two people maybe saying something to me about that's not the Carolina color. It should have been crimson or burgundy or whatever you want to say the color is. But I, I, I stuck with the blue. I wanted to stick with the light blue. And is that the same blue as like a haint blue? Is that like the, the blue that wards away spirits and, and things like that? Yeah. I was told, somebody said, Slave said to me once, he said, great choice. Did you know that this color is supposed to ward away evil spirits? And I told her, I said, well, I think it works a little bit sometimes. <laughs> but overall, it's been working for me. But it didn't necessarily work out all the time because there was a, a I guess a moment of tragedy where your pit burned down and at that point I mean you, you had been getting tugged at by John T. Ed and some others to I guess move out of Hemingway and open up a, a spot in Charleston or elsewhere and that was kind of the moment where you first went on on the road really showing people across the southeast and across the country what what you could do. Yeah so there, there was that time we did have a fire and uh, John T. and Nick you know, they chimed in and, and they, they helped me get myself back together to get the original business going. In the midst of getting that back up and running, there was always that thought of, hey, why don't you expand? Why don't you go to Charleston? Of course, I was in complete doubt. Nah, I'm all right out here in the country. This is where people come to live when they retire. I think I'm okay. But all the same time, the warm reception on the Exile Tour and the pop-ups that we've done here and there in Charleston and different areas was so welcoming. I was like, hey, I don't know, but it sounds pretty good. And Nick, he just kept coming after me saying, hey, dude, telling you, you should expand, you should expand. And before you know it, I gave in and here we are. Charleston, South Carolina, Birmingham. <laughs> and this Nick you're referring to, he is the Nick of Jim and Nick's, is that right? That is the Nick of Jim and Nick's. So, you know, it's an interesting mindset that he has this very successful barbecue chain, but he's also coming out to you and saying, hey, why don't you open up your own barbecue spot? I know you all became business partners at some point, but kind of that mindset of, of creating almost a competitor is an interesting mindset uh, of Nick's. Tell me about how you and Nick became friends and colleagues and, and partners. Well, first of all, I met Nick through John T in a phone call where we exchanged numbers. And when I first met Nick, we had a conversation and he, and he invited me to come do an event in Charleston at his uh, store here in Charleston downtown. And we did the event. And that same day, you know, me and Nick hit it off. We were friends from the beginning. Then we got even closer. We traveled. We learned together. We talked barbecue. We, we did different events together. And we were so, so close to a point where we would just call and say, hey, I have an idea. What do you think? 
and vice versa. We continuously learn from each other and we still do. So in creating this relationship, I saw Nick's success in the way that he grew his business. And every time I would ask a question, if he didn't know it, he was honest with me. And if he did, he shared it with me. So I said, hey, this guy is just more than just another guy doing barbecue. You know, he's like a brother. And it got to the point where Nick was the best man at my wedding before any partnership or any Rodney Scotts came along. Nick and I were just super tight, man. Still are. As he was persuading you to come to Charleston, how were your parents reacting there in, in Hemingway? My parents, my mom was like, yes, sounds like a great idea. You should look into it. Why not go for it? My dad was the reserve type, you know, older country guy, kind of, uh, I don't know. How is this going to work? When he found out that it would be two separate things going on, he seemed to be okay with it. He was like, sure, go ahead, go for it. You know, he was still a little reserved on his open opinions and everything were kind of reserved, but he still said, go for it. And then, you know, a few years later, I don't know if it was the very first year that you opened, but all of a sudden you are being recognized as the James Beard winner for the best chef in the Southeast. Yeah, that was that was a huge step. That was a huge accomplishment. To this day, I'm, I'm still excited about that day, that moment, that evening in Chicago, and overall grateful of the people that I encountered up into that award. You know, Nick, of course, was always in my corner. John T., Nicholas. Paul Yek, all of these people, my wife, everybody that was on, you know, in, in my world stuck by me and showed me different things and kind of constantly taught me and supported me in whatever thoughts and ideas that we had to a point where we got recognized to win this James Beard Award. You know, that's a night that I, I still appreciate. I will always appreciate. And I definitely appreciate all the people that were involved to help me grow to that point. And it was still pretty new. I mean, at that time for for barbecue to be recognized like at with that level of award I think I mean it was typically going to sort of the white tablecloth type restaurants fine dining establishments what did it mean you know not, not just for you but for you know places like your parents place in Hemingway for shops like that in South Carolina to be recognized the barbecue world especially because I've got tons and tons of calls I had to turn my phone off that night because of the ceremony of course and when I turned it back on the next morning, it was like a long beat from all the messages. And most of those messages came from barbecue pitmasters, well-known, some from little pockets in rural areas to others that were on TV or different places like that, showing gratitude and appreciation, saying, thank you. You know, finally, we've got our turn. We've been recognized. You know, you have shown the world that the barbecue folks are here. We exist. We work hard. Our food is just as great as anybody else's. So it gave a lot of inspiration to a lot of people who just do mostly barbecue. It gave a lot of inspirations to up and coming pit masters who are looking to get into barbecue. So I just, I just felt grateful, um, very appreciative, very much uh, more than excited to say that I, I was a part of barbecue getting recognized on another level. Now that you are opening up more and more restaurants, obviously you are not cooking at each one of them all of the time. Uh, I know that when you opened the restaurant there in Birmingham, you came and, and stayed there for several months, getting that one up on its feet. I imagine you'll do something similar in Atlanta where you're training the local pitmasters there. Does it feel weirder to, to be moving away from, I guess, the, 
daily grind of working one pit all day long to kind of being, I mean, almost a brand, you know, Rodney Scott is almost a, uh, an emerald. First of all, it's, it's a different feeling. It's an adjustment, but let me also say that, uh, there's a lot of miles on that diesel, man. I go to, from restaurant to restaurant as much as I can. I'm willing to still put in whatever I can. I pulled hogs at both restaurants within the last three weeks. So I still get involved as much as they allow me to. Because a lot of times you go in there and there's a pit guy that's doing his thing and he's caught up. He's on point. There's nothing left for me to do but stand there and shoot the breeze and sip on some water. <laughs> I still go into restaurants as much as I can and, and try to hang out a little bit with some of the guys in the back and gir or girls in the back because women do cook barbecue too. Let me make that, make that known. As much as I can, I go to each restaurant and hang out. And now you have launched a book where you are training people uh, you know, from their homes uh, to, to build their own pits in a relatively inexpensive way. I guess there in Birmingham, somebody came and stole your whole rig, so they were a little too aggressive. <laughs> you should have just given them the book. How does somebody pull that up? Good luck, guy. It's only one of them. Make sure, make sure I don't see you. <laughs> I'm going to call the police. You know, apparently they had to know that I was nowhere in the area at the time. I don't know. Uh, you know, my staff thought that I gave somebody permission. I don't know. And, you know, I didn't give anybody permission. And ever who stole it, I mean, just be nice. Bring it back. If you need something, you know, let us know. But it, it's, it's, a little, it's a little heartbreaking because you don't have to steal anything, you know? We'll, we'll share with you. We'll, we'll, this book is coming out. We'll tell you how to do this at home where you don't have to steal this rig. And it's known all over, so they can't ever pull it in public. So just, just bring it back. Drop it off. We'll, we'll say thank you and don't come back to steal anything else from us again. <laughs> bring our rig back. Because <laughs> looking through your book, I mean, all you have to really do is lay down these concrete cinder blocks, big old tank, and you can... You can do some of this stuff. I mean, not the level of what you're doing, but you can you can do an approximation of it at home. Yeah, you know, in the book, we we try to tell you how to build the pits and, and make the barrel, and all you need is a little space, and, and you're good. You have a saying that you are known for and associated with, every day is a good day. Do I have that right? Yes, every day is a good day. I say it all the time. It's got to be a little bit harder to have said that, I guess, in this past year than maybe in some of the years before in the food industry pandemic hit restaurants hard pandemic hit plants hard i think you raised most of your own hogs or at least get them locally sourced how have you maintained that every day is a good day mindset in a year where you know you've had to close your businesses for a time where you had a rig stolen there in birmingham oh man i continue to say it um i say it even more you know if i said every day is a good day once a day or twice a day during those tough times i tried to say it as much as 10 times a day because you have to keep your head up. I know we, these are challenging times. These were very, very scary times. I remember I couldn't hold my head up to face my staff because I was afraid how will they survive if we can't keep all of them at work. We, we got to a point where we all spoke on the phone and, and we agreed that we're in this business right now to maintain. You know, we're not here to make money. We're here to maintain to make sure our staff is okay because these are the people that we count on and they count on us. You know, so we were more focused on making sure our staff was okay. Luckily, we got to the point where we just started utilizing our drive-through a lot more. We stayed in constant communication daily with all CDC rules and regulations, 
all personal and local rules and regulations, trying to go above and beyond to protect ourselves as well as our staffs so that they can stay safe for, our, for their families. So each day that I've seen a person or we made it along the day and nobody was affected by this pandemic, I would say every day is a good day. Every day is a good day. Constantly saying it to a point where I was able to face them again and business started to pick up to a point where they were able to come back into the restaurant to help us with third parties and drive-throughs and to-go orders. So, you know, it's like saying never give up. It, yes, it's a challenge. Yes, it's tough. Been a tough year, but all the same time, every day's a good day because you're alive. You have a chance to adjust to make it to the next hour. Barbecue is such a communal activity. In addition to your restaurants, you've done these big events where you know people gather and field. It does feel like we've kind of been denied that as a community for, for the last year. What are you looking forward to most about when you know we are sort of able to, to reopen things a little bit more normally? I know things have started to reopen in, in Alabama and, and South Carolina and Georgia. What are you most looking forward to about you know kind of post-vaccine pandemic life? What I'm looking forward to post-vaccine and post-pandemic is to be able to stand and hold a conversation with folks up close and personal again. Not necessarily all in their faces, you know, but to just to be able to talk and, and not be afraid of where that person's been, to comfortably give them advice when they ask, how do you do your hog? To comfortably hold a conversation with them and to be able to sit at a table with a stranger and say, how's your food? You know, my thing was to walk through my dining room and constantly check on our guests. And the pandemic slowed that down. So I'm, I'm excited to get back to that, to get to that table to say, hello, how are you? You know, how's your food? Where are you from? Share your stories with me, what you know about barbecue. And, and we will exchange ideas and stories and regions and how we grew up. I'm looking forward to getting back to that, the personalization of talking about how we do food, uh, uh, you know, getting to know people who do different styles of barbecue. I'm so excited to get back to that. Each of your recipes, not all of them, but several of the items on your menu are, are named after somebody. You know, walk us through the stories behind some of your favorite dishes uh, that you serve. The stories behind the favorite dishes that I serve all are parts of me growing up, all are parts of me encountering and learning different things along the way from childhood to current day. Ella's banana pudding, that's my mom. My mom used to make banana pudding on Sundays and she would give me the broken vanilla wafers in the bottom of the box. I would always want extra cookies or just wait for that box. And that's why I wanted banana pudding because it was a great memory for me. You know, Coco's chicken salad is in the book. That's my wife. She's been there for me through everything from the journey from Hemingway all the way to Charleston. Even when we travel, she's been there with me. So when you see names on the menu, those are different people that we've encountered. Paul Yex, smoked catfish dip. You know, Paul's, Paul's one of the chefs that worked with our PRG group. Amazing dude, very funny. I look to him again, more as just a guy I know, but as a brother, a friend. So each, each recipe that you see that has a name with it, those people had an important part somewhere in the life of Rodney Scott. That's why you see them mentioned. And you are now sharing this legacy, the same one that, you know, you inherited from, from your dad with, with your own son. How has that been training, training your son to cook hogs? Well, training my son to cook is, is great when the internet is down because this kid, <laughs> this kid is a huge gamer. Every time you look, he's on his video games, but we haven't had the opportunity to cook a whole hog yet. 
He's now 12. But we've done little things in the backyard. Um, we've had him at the restaurant doing little things like, you know, prepping a hog. The guys in the kitchen sh show him how to prep some of the dishes back there. Um, we've shown him how to season the ribs, how to peel the ribs. We've educated him here at the house on how to take his ground beef, season it through, make his patty, and cook it on the grill himself. So we're, we're going through bits and pieces of little, little training and safety tips and everything that it takes to operate at home as well as at the pits. So it's going pretty good. When he's into it, he's into it. But you got to hurry because it's not long before he wants to get back to his phone or his video game. Well, he's a little behind you. You, you cooked your first hog at how old? 11? 11. Yeah, I told him. I said, son, you're past. Dude, you're, you're way past. You know, we, like I said, we hadn't had the opportunity to go from start to finish where I wanted to just load it and let him do everything else along the way. So hopefully we'll get to that sooner than later. We're going to try to race 13 and get that done. For the pitmasters out there who are grinding away in Greensboro, Alabama, or, or Coleman, Alabama, you know, and they're, and they're waiting for, for that New York Times reporter to come in and, and discover their restaurant and put them on, on the map. What, what's your advice to somebody who's trying to get discovered and, and get to the level where you are, other than being a great chef, obviously? Oh, man, um, my advice to all the guys that are in these areas and these little hidden pockets is keep cooking, keep smoking, keep putting that food out there. You know, don't stop because, believe it or not, somebody's visiting. Somebody's getting lost in traffic that, that may come and smell or find your food. Somebody's passing through visiting some relatives that are strangers to the area and discovering a whole new style of food. So keep cooking. You never know. That thing is going to get told to someone else. It's going to get said, hey, I went to this little town. I don't know where it is. You cross this railroad track. And before you know it, you get to this little spot that has this great food. And if these people keep cooking and keep putting that great consistency out there, success is sure to come your way. You know, uh, people are going to notice you. They're going to hear about you. They're going to talk. When something's great, you can't keep a secret. They're going to tell. And so I say to those guys in these small towns, keep cooking, wait your turn. It is sure enough to come. You'll see. Parents at one point lived in Philadelphia uh, and the great sort of Southern food tradition has been carried to the North and to the West. If you go somewhere in LA, it might be called soul food, but, but it's Southern cooking through and through. Can we expect Rodney Scott's whole hog barbecue to expand you know, to, to Philly or to Chicago or to New York, or is it going to be a, a purely Southern chain for the foreseeable future? Man, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's going to be Southern only. Um, Rodney Scott has a dream. <laughs> and that dream is to spread barbecue and a whole lot of love, fun, and good vibes around the world. Yes, I said the world. I dream that we could take Rodney Scott's barbecue and stick it in every state, in every country, in the entire world. That is my dream. That is my optimism. So, for me to sit here and say it's only going to be in the South, I, I, I can't say that. I can't do that to you. I, I, if I'm allowed to, I will definitely try to grow it all over the entire world. As you have had the opportunity to cook all around the world, have there been barbecue traditions and that you've maybe learned uh, from, from other parts of the world unexpectedly that you've incorporated into your own food and style? Man, well, I've been to several places. Uh, I've been to uh, Belize been to Australia, been to uh, France, and we, we learned a lot of different styles, like the asada style of barbecue, um, cooking over live fire, 
I've witnessed a lot of it. I hadn't practiced what I've seen from over there, but just seeing and learning some of their techniques, uh, for example, how they did fish right over the hot coals, how uh, we, they, they set me up to cook three little pigs, honestly, three little pigs, not a joke. <laughs> and on this pit, it was just the pigs laid down and they were never covered. And you cooked them wide open all day over hot coals. So you nearly had to kneel down in order to get under to fire these coals. And I had to cook with no covering, nothing holding the heat in and just making sure that everything continued to cook throughout the day without losing it. That was a learning experience for me and I appreciated it. It also gave me confidence to understand that you can cook without a covering and still get your hogs done. So when I'm home now, it doesn't bother me if, if the cover wasn't on it the entire time, I'll, I'll slide it back over tight or whatever, because I've, I've experienced cooking without it and it gave me some confidence. So hadn't really practiced a lot, but it has given me some lessons and some confidence and definitely some different experiences. Coming up after the break, Chef Rodney Scott offers us his picks for the South's must-have barbecue spots. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. Obviously, Rodney Scott is, is the tip of the top barbecue for the Southeast, but if you had to pick five other restaurants, not even just limiting to the South, but if you had to pick five barbecue spots that are your must-go, highest recommended barbecue spots, what would they be? Man, Helen Turner's Barbecue, Brownsville, Tennessee. Sam Jones Barbecue, of course, in North Carolina. Raleigh recently. Joe's in Kansas City. Yes, Kansas City. I was impressed. So many places. Jim and Nick's, believe it or not. Yes, <laughs> Jim and Nick's, Peg Lake Porker. Wow. Peg Lake Porker is in Nashville, Tennessee. So many places. And, and you know, uh, those, those are the ones that, that are established, that I know of. But I'm the kind of guy, every now and again, I want to hit those back roads. And I want to find those little local mom and pops places and see what they got going on, how they're doing it, their, their style, their sauce, their, their techniques. I want to get in there and kind of taste some of those as well. So never know. Well, let's talk about sauce. Cause I mean, South Carolina has what, at least five different types of sauces. Oh man. So many and still growing. <laughs> when you moved to, when you moved and opened up your spot in Alabama, did you feel any pressure to add a white sauce? I know that's more of a Decatur thing than a Birmingham thing. Is white sauce now part of your barbecue repertoire? White sauce is definitely a part of our barbecue repertoire now. Um, not basically uh, because of just moving to Alabama, but we also thought about it in the beginning when the idea was presented to me to have more than just one or two sauces on the table. So the Rod's white sauce was one of the things that we came up with and, and we love it. I love the white sauce. And we, we added that sauce and it couldn't have come at a better time than when we opened in Alabama. So it wasn't necessarily pressure, but it was more or less of another option for folks who are used to the white sauce down in the Birmingham, Alabama area. Will you put white sauce on your pork or is that strictly a chicken thing? I would put white sauce on my pork sometimes. All depends on the mood. You know, I'm a, I like to eat, man. I don't know who all have seen me, but I like to eat. 
and I will try, I will try it, you know, I will see what it tastes like. And if it works for me, I'm going to go for it. As you are expanding, you know, your barbecue world empire, we talked a little bit about the book. We talked a little bit about, about opening the restaurants in Atlanta and, and elsewhere in Birmingham, but what else is next for you? Man, uh, first of all, I want to just say thanks to everybody that's been supporting us for right now. And, you know, what's next is to probably just focus on opening some restaurants, get them going, um, uh, getting back settled in to the new normal that's coming, sharing good vibes, getting to know new people. Uh, I want to go back and and, and make sure that everything is kind of the way it started, you know, with Rodney Scott enjoying the music, Rodney Scott in the pits, Rodney Scott walking the tables. I want to get back into that first and then maybe finish grow these restaurants around the world. We've talked about storytelling, you know, to, to wrap us up. What is the best story you've ever heard while waiting on a hog to smoke? So I come from an area where a lot of great mechanics are. And they do a lot of street racing here and there on the back roads. And sometimes they go to the track and they do their thing. And a lot of the older guys saying, oh, you boys ain't fast nowadays. You know, we, we was real fast. And one guy said, I, my car was so fast, I could take a Coca-Cola can, sit it in front of the front tire. And I could hit the accelerator. The front tire will go over the can and land on the other side. That's how much power I had, right? This is this guy, same guy. That was one. And the second lie that he told that I'll never forget is, man, I was so fast. I could hit a man and run behind him and catch him before he falls. And I'm like, what? So you hear, you hear the most unbelievable stories and this same dude, one dude had so many of them. He said they had a mule that was so smart. In the afternoon, his, his mom used to tell a mule, say, go get them kids from the road. And the mule would nod his head, yeah, and would walk to the road and wait for the school bus. And the mule would guide them from the school bus back to the house. Do you miss Hemingway? I mean, you mentioned that's where people go to retire. Is that where you think, will you retire there someday? No. I've come to Mount Pleasant in Charleston area. I am spoiled with serene peace and beauty. Um, I'm close to the beach, close to work. Um, I think I love suburbia a little bit more than the rural areas right now. It's hard to top. Chef Scott, thank you so much for your time and, and good luck with everything. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. And that's our show, folks. Special thanks to Rodney Scott for taking time to speak with us this week. You can find his restaurants and his cookbook at rodneyscottsbarbecue.com. That's bbq.com. If you liked the show, join the conversation, our weekly newsletter, where we look at the South through a new lens every week. Sign up for it at reckonsouth.com slash newsletters. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team at Edit Audio. Our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. If this is your first time listening to us, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And if you've been listening for a while, please send it to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can keep growing this conversation about the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. <laughs>